I wish Warner Brothers would produce more animated features from this same production team. I'm sorry we caught up to this picture a couple years late, but it's available on tape and disc. I watch it at home on Laserdisc, and with a booming surround sound system, Batman Mask of the Phantasm was big-time entertainment. I really liked it. You know, I think that the day is coming, and it's also happening with the Disney pictures, when adults are realizing that animation is not limited to an right. entertainment form for children. Right. And that animation can do some things live action can't do. For example, the sets of the city in this movie oh. are seen more clearly than right. they are in the live action Absolutely movies, true. where they get kind of murky. Right. The exaggeration of the effects and of the camera angles can be stretched and perspective can be played with in a way that isn't available in the real world. And then also here, it's interesting that they really did have a story, more they of a really story do. than the movies. And yes. the, the characters, and they pause, They're and they motivated. think, and they have feelings and motivations, and you get involved in it. I got completely involved in it, mm -hmm. and also it's tight. It's 77 minutes long, every image counts. Remember, mm -hmm. they're spending more money in animation, mm -hmm. maybe per minute, than they are in some live-action pictures, and they're very economically done. So you saw Batman forever, and you still want to see some Batman? Try renting this. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Not a Bomb Podcast. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna talk about movies that bombed or or maybe the critics didn't like. Brad, this week is your pick. What did you choose for us? Sure, this week our Angel of Death awaits us. It is Batman: Mask of the Phantasm. Wait a minute, a Batman movie bombed? I don't. It did. Ah, uh, posh. I don't the, believe it. Of the of the animated variety. Oh, there it is. There it is. Well. This is a this is gonna be a fun episode. We had recently done a podcast, um, a really fun podcast, and the host let us choose a film. Little did we know that the genre and even the country of the film that this came from. This person was like an expert and uh, had written books or theses. I, I I don't know, um, <laughs> but uh, we we have a quid pro quo kind of thing. So if we do somebody's podcast, they have to come over to ours. And uh, Brad, do you want to do you want to introduce our guest for this evening? Yeah, our guest this week is the host of the Movie Struck podcast, Sophia. Sophia, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on. I love a quid pro quo. We love to get the <laughs> the back and forth. And uh, very high thinking of me to say that I've written a book about uh, <laughs> my college thesis is gathering dust somewhere on martial arts cinema in Hong Kong, but. Uh, it was a delight to have you guys on the show, and I'm excited to be here on yours today. Uh, That's it, more academic work than we've seen in a long time. So <laughs> This is true. Um, and we're still waiting patiently to read that uh, paper. So Scouring um, the old hard drives. We'll see if they uh, contain the files we seek, but it's, I make no promise. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we, we have a tradition here. Anytime we have somebody that comes on the show for the first time, we like to do this, uh, it's not a Rorschach test, but I guess it's kind of like that. We have five questions. And the whole idea of this is to just to get to know you a little bit better and find out what your tastes are in film, et cetera. I think Brad and I have a pretty good uh, idea of that based on being on your show. But um, you have not seen these questions. This is a total surprise. Nope. 
A couple will be softball questions. A couple will be a little difficult. So I'm going to kick things off. All right, here we go. What is your favorite film from your least favorite genre? Ooh, good question. I usually tell people, start with what is your least favorite genre. Figure that one out first. And when, mm-hmm. when you get a handle on that, then what do you think your favorite film is from there? I tend not to love anything that's too historical, particularly like British period pieces. Oh. Um, but a while back, I was watching through all of the best picture winners in order. Uh, this was a deep pandemic activity for... <laughs> hey, we we all did weird things. We just, have we a few of those, yeah. Stuff. Uh, but one of them, Tom Jones, is an extremely strange, like, absurdist comedy that is also a British period piece. So I'm going to go with that as my favorite from an unpopular genre. It's If you've ever seen it, it feels incredibly confrontational to the viewer. Uh, the camera is very in-your-face for being a period movie at the same time. The story is just... Uh, suave uh womanizing man off causing hijinks and the people who chase after him but the the creation of the film the cinematography is just some of the oddest stuff i've ever seen but it's fun to watch have have you seen that brad no that's from the 60s right yeah it was one of the earlier like uh, second quarter of oscar winners they all blurred together at a certain point (laughs) okay well i wrote it i now i'm curious i want to go check this out Okay. Wow. Okay. All right. I wasn't expecting a Tom Jones. I wasn't either. I didn't know where you were going, but but here we go. Here we go. All right. All right. I'm up next. If you could cast a famous Asian actor star as Batman slash Bruce Wayne, who would you like to see in that role? Ooh, I kind of want to go Donnie Yen. I feel like he could do both sides (gasps) of the like badass stoic Batman and then also kind of play up. I love when they do a Bruce Wayne who is like the playboy millionaire a little bit. And I feel like Donnie Yen has the charisma to carry that part also. So that's my, that'd be my pick. I know he's a little older now, but I still think it could be a fun take on the character. I, I think it'd be like right now. I think the Donnie Yen of yeah. now would be fantastic at that. That's yeah. a, Do you, do you give have me, a selection, Brad? Give me the bedazzled jeans from flashpoint. Oh and yeah. And that's like, that's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. You don't want to see no, him in actually, the uh, fat suit from uh, <laughs> no, the fat right? Okay. No. Actually, I think Donnie Yen might be the perfect answer for that question. Uh, I think so I too, but I, I have a pick that would just be fun. Of course you would. Okay. Yeah. What is your pick, Troy? Yeah. And and this is this, <laughs> this is for is my Troy's nice way of saying you were wrong. So no, no, no. I actually no, no. I agree with you one hundred percent. That is the perfect answer. However, this one, I think I just want to see in some alternate reality, just so that our friends over at the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema could score to 10. But I, I would love to see Samuel Hung in that role oh. <laughs> um, as Batman. Maybe more so like the Penguin or something. No, no, no. <laughs> as Batman, uh, okay. I think I think that would be a fun film. Not not the brooding like Bruce Wayne. I, it would be an interesting experiment. So. To get Samo and Donnie in the same Batman movie, though, that's the dream, right? Like, get both of them playing against each other. Yes. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, I, that would be pretty awesome. Okay, for that film, he could play the Penguin, get Sam Hui and some <laughs> others. Okay, uh, here's my question. Who is your favorite Batman villain? Ooh, um, I've always been a little bit... Uh, I, I grew up watching... we've talked about my dad uh in emails before almost all my film tastes come from whatever he wanted us to watch as kids and we watched a lot of the 1966 
uh, Adam West Batman movie. And ever since then, I have been obsessed with the Riddler. I just think he's so fun. I like telling a little puzzle. I like doing a little riddle. I like when he sky writes something that has no clear answer. Um, and even if the iterations of the Riddler have changed over time and maybe he's lost some of the uh, cartoonishness of the 60s, I still I still love that funky guy and his little puzzles. Awesome. What did you think of the latest iteration of him in The Batman? Yeah, I I love the movie. I think it's an interesting take on the Riddler and it worked for that movie in particular. It's not my favorite version of the character ever. I tend to like stuff that are especially campy and over the top, but uh, I think he fit perfectly for the film that he was in. So I can't complain about him on that level. Awesome. Okay, Brad, I think you're up next. Yeah. Uh, what was the first movie you remember seeing in the theater? Ooh. And I could just queue up feeling old as soon as you said <laughs> yeah. let's, let's hear it. It's probably one of the Toy Stories, but the first like clear theater-going experience I have is my dad and I did go to see The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And this was a big, like, I'm going with my dad to see this movie. This is a dad movie, and he did not like it. <laughs> That's uh, my God. I feel so old right now because I remember taking my son. It wasn't his first film. He was young, but we mm-hmm. saw Indiana Jones and uh, and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And he saw it twice. He loved it. Um, yeah. yeah, I can defend it. It's not my favorite, but yeah, I'm feeling, I'm feeling pretty old. All right. You got the last question, Brad. All right. And lastly, what is your favorite movie bomb that you would recommend to everybody? It's the Speed Racer, a 2008 Wachowski Speed Racer. I am an on-the-record noted Speed Racer defender. That movie has had a renaissance recently of kind of the film community turning around on it, but at the time, it bombed. It's fantastic. If you haven't seen it, it's worth a watch. Uh, everyone, is, it's got the cast is outstanding. You get John Goodman and Susan Sarandon, and they are perfect in their roles. I think the visuals are a lot smarter than they get credit for. They're very careful. And at one point, Racer X, uh, who unbeknownst to Speed is his long lost brother, uh, Rex Racer, flips a car, punches a guy who is driving a different car, and then when he lands, he laughs. And if that's not the most charming thing that's ever been on screen, I don't know what is. <laughs> Uh, you're not, you're not wrong. Yeah. I, <laughs> that's and, one of our, I, I, we watched that for the, the podcast. I really enjoyed that film a lot. I, and it's got an awesome monkey in it. I, I, and it doesn't die compared to the <laughs> no, Brad, the movies that Brad shot in picked. the chest. Yeah. Like the fall. Um, well we have, we've never done this before. I have a bonus question. So Brad doesn't even know this one. Okay. H- here we go. Do you have a Batman voice? Ooh, good question. I, I'm on a Dungeons and Dragons podcast where I play a gravelly voiced character. Um, so that's probably the closest I've got. And I can yeah. I th- assume we got to hear the Batman. If you have a Batman voice, you got to share it. Let me drink a little water here for a second. This is going to, this is oh. not sustainable. <laughs> okay. We're just, you know, whatever Batman line you want to do, go right on ahead, but we got to hear the Batman voice. <laughs> I am the knight. I am Alfred. Quick. Get me my narrative foil. They're they're off somewhere doing other crimes that I'm getting blamed for. And it just keeps going and going. <laughs> That's not bad. I like it. It's been worse. Thank you. Hey, this is the home of bad impressions, so it is okay. <laughs> yeah, you, you want to try, Brad? Do you have a Batman voice? No, I'm, I'm okay. Uh-huh. I'm okay. okay, all right. Uh-huh. Well, we're going to talk about 1993's uh, Batman Mask of the Phantasm. It, it's weird that we would be talking about a Batman film that bombed because... 
I think every Batman film, at least the live action ones, make money, right? For the most part? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, So, Brad, take us back to 1993 when this was released and tell us how this did when it it hit the theaters. Sure. So, release Christmas Day, that is December 25th, 1993, with a reported budget of $6 million. It's... Uh, has a total box office run of $5.6 million. So it does not make back its production budget, sadly. Um, it opens up 11th place. Um, it makes $1.19 million opening weekend. Ouch. Modest take. Whew. Listen to some of these films that it gets beat by. The Pelican Reef, Mrs. Doubtfire, Tombstone, mm-hmm. Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit, Beethoven second, a lot of sequels, uh, Grumpy Old Men, Wayne's World 2, The Piano, and Schindler's List. That's a crowded market. It ba- it a Beethoven yeah. movie beat this. That That's kind of insulting, actually. I mean, in its fourth week. Oh, Ooh, I know. Not I know. the fourth week of wow. Beethoven. Yeah, it's the fourth week of Beethoven. Um, Rotten Tomatoes currently has this at a 82% with the critics. That's with 55 and then an 88 with the audience. That's with over 5,000 reviews. Oh boy, Troy. Oh, our friends over at the Christian website, moviegod.org have a little write up <laughs> on mask of the phantasm. Oh, let me guess. Let me guess. Penguin worldviews. Ooh, but the penguin's not in this film. Oh, dang it. So, All right. <laughs> um, so, uh, for those unfamiliar moviegod.org is, uh, a website for Christians that reviews films, not for their quality, but for their content. Their tagline is the family guide to movies and entertainment. They have a scale of plus four to minus four. Um, plus four is jerking off to uh, what's that? Uh, freedom, the sound of freedom. And uh, minus four is the devil's music, Troy. I, I don't um, think that's how they list that scale. It is. It, it's, <laughs> it's right here on their website. I'm looking at it right okay. now. Okay. Um, sure. Right. All right. Troy Sauer. Yes. Where does Batman, an animated film, sit on their scale? <sighs> wow. This is tough. I'm, I'm going to say, ooh, I don't know. I'm going to guess a negative one. Okay. Sophia, do you have a guess? We go one lower and say a negative two. We've got the phantasm aspect, and I feel like that's going to knock it some points right there. That's true. <laughs> that would that would be true. It is a minus two. Sophia, you can oh. never come back because you're batting a thousand. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <clears throat> I think this I'm batting great. like point one eight five. Yeah, you're <laughs> Troy. Yeah, you would be in like single A baseball. I might be week. negative if that's even possible. No. Probably is. <laughs> All right, contents. This is very short, but it's got our favorite phrase: pagan worldview, mm. one profanity, no obscenities, applied adultery between Bruce Wayne and Andrea Beaumont, and ample violence in several scenes, a little blood, no gore good enough for minus two and finally films you could have seen december of 1993 you've got a dangerous woman six degrees of separation sister act two ways road Two, schindler's list beethoven second beethoven second made 52 million dollars the pelican brief philadelphia grumpy old men tombstone what's eating gilbert grape in 
the name of the father and Shadowlands. That is a lots of movies in the month of December. From I think every genre that's out there, you've got mm-hmm. a film. Yeah. Okay. It looks like let's see, Schindler's List was the big winner of that month because it made three hundred and twenty-two million dollars. Laughs all around in Schindler's List, Joy. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Um, knee slapper. So bef- before we kind of talk about the people that made the film and, and the voice cast, just a couple questions real quick. What are uh, how big of a Batman fan are either of you? I, I guess I'll start with you, Sophia. I mean, when when we gave you a list of films to talk about, you you narrowed this down to a couple. This was right on the top, and you chose this one. So. Where do you stand with just Batman in general and and all its content out there? And if you if you have a favorite iteration of him. Yeah, I would say I'm like a movie and TV Batman fan more than anything else. I think it's he's a fun character and he gets a lot of fun media based off of him. I kind of grew up with the like Justice League animated cartoon that was right in my like prime time era. Um, I've watched a both professionally and just out of personal interest, watch a lot of the movies. I've seen a lot of different variations of Batman. And like I said, I grew up with the 66 uh, Adam West iteration. And so it's always, he's always kind of held a special place in my media consuming heart. Um, But I wouldn't say I'm like minutia familiar with the comics or the characters uh, history outside of that. Um, I kind of know the broad strokes, but unless it's been on screen, it's probably not something I'm super familiar with. Oh, okay. What about you, Brad? Uh, I, I mean, Batman is the only DC character I really care about. Um, I mean, it started at a young, I mean, th- I think every young boy grows up and wants to be Batman. Uh, the animated series came out when I was nine. And I remember going up to visit my brother when he was at Hanover and we would sit and watch, uh, recorded episodes of the animated series together in his dorm. Um, yeah, Batman's always been probably, He's probably a top five character for me, like comic book character. Um, I really enjoy movies, video games. The last like Arkham stuff has been really great. Um, even some of those other animated movies that they've done. I think he's probably the best representation on film that we have of a superhero consistently. Even like the bad ones, like Batman and Robin still has its moments especially if you compare it to like stuff now you're like yeah I'd much rather watch Shakespeare that. it's Shakespearean uh, at yeah. moments compared yeah. to what we have yeah yeah uh, so I think uh, I think his representation on on film and on the screen and in video games and in comics has been 50 years plus is pretty impressive uh I like um your your comment about the consistency so Batman's been around a long time. And if you if you go back and look at all of the movies, the TV shows, the direct-to-video stuff, the video games, um, they've they've always had a consistent quality to it, and it's usually pretty good. I I like the detective comics. I'm like you, Brad. I, I grew up on the Marvel comics, but the only two series I ever dipped my toes into with DC consistently was um, a horror comic called Weird War Tales uh, from the 70s and 80s. It had like the creature commandos. It was super cool. And um, Detective Comics. And I, I even like some of the series that they did, like Shadow of the Bat in the 90s. I, I, I loved reading those, but I think people kind of crap on that series. Um, the the movies that DC has been putting out lately that are direct to video, I like the fact that they take um, chances with Batman and that storytelling aspect. Now, some of it 
doesn't work like that ninja Japanese Batman one. I think yeah, that it's one, that one terrible. <laughs> um, no. But my favorite of those is one that's right up my alley, which was the Batman Soul of the Dragon that came out in 2021. Because mm-hmm. you get a uh, Bruce Lee-like character, a Jim Kelly-like character, and it feels like it takes place in the 70s. Uh, it, it's a fantastic film. But um, yeah, I mean, he's... He's always a very interesting character, and I'm always surprised how many times they bring him in into some type of uh, medium, and they decide to. I mean, how many times have you seen his parents die? Like, yeah, every 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 time we got to revisit that. But I think it's kind of important because that becomes a um, core. I don't know. It, it it's it brings you as a viewer closer to him to understand his reasoning. And of all the superheroes that are out there, Batman is probably the one that we can relate to the most because it's not like he has superpowers. And when he's using his detective stuff, you you feel like okay, he's just a smart billionaire. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm always I'm always interested what they do with him. Um, yeah, like, and you brought up the animated films. I mean, we get all a lot of different storylines in those animated films. I know they've done like Death of the Family, mm-hmm. uh, Gotham by Gaslight is really cool. Batman Year um, One. Um, one, was a hush, great, yeah, and yeah, so they've done a lot that you know you just get to see it, um, you know, outside of the comic book, and it, you know a lot of that stuff. I know they did, well, they do the um, long Halloween, mm-hmm. long Halloween. Yeah, they did that in like two parts. So yeah, it's uh, he's got a lot of representation on screen, but uh, I think most of it is good. Well, and and minus Ninja Batman, yes. But the other the other great thing about Batman is is the the villains. I mean, yeah. Yeah. out of all of the entire series of comic books out there, I always think Batman has the most fun, unique, and memorable villain uh, villains outside of maybe Spider Man. Yeah, you know, we all love Calendar Man. That's <laughs> true. We do love Calendar Man. Um, all right. So the second question, though. Uh, when, when the animated series debuted and I'm sure you guys were like, yeah, I was watching it when I was, you know, five, six, nine years old. For me, it was a big deal in, in the college fraternity because when we, when that debuted, when I was in college, all the guys were like, well, we got to watch this Batman cartoon. It's like super cool. Um, so we're, and I'll start with you, Brad. I mean, when the animated series came out, were you a fan of it? And and are you still a fan of it? Oh, absolutely. I think it's one of my favorite animated series of all time. Um, I do have a lot of nostalgia because of like me and my brother sharing that, but also like you look back on it now and it's so noir, so art deco. So all the things that I, I really, really like, it's really kind of adult in a way, like not like hardcore adult, but it, it definitely isn't dumbed down and they do all, they get away with a lot of stuff in it. I remember people smoke in that show. They have guns, and it's it's weird to look back on and watch now with everything being so tamed. But yeah, I love the animated show, and it's I mean it still holds up. Like it still looks amazing. Okay, what about you, Sophia? Yeah, I didn't watch it right when it started airing originally. I went back. I think I rented a DVD from Blockbuster of like the first season or something. But uh, I I agree with the the noir point, especially that sort of vibe that the show has is just so cool and unique. And I think that's the reason I go back to it occasionally. It's just like, oh, you know, I really want a quick little episode of something. Why don't we get a little Batman, the animated series, get the cool, the animation's uh, so unique and you get that very 
tonally consistent show. Um, and then if you can Mark Hamill Joker episode, always a plus as oh, well. Yeah. So uh, not current with it when it came out originally, but definitely have watched my fair share and uh, love it all the same. <laughs> yeah, it's it. I think it still blows me out of the water today. Some of those episodes in terms of its storytelling, how it looks, even in comparison to some of the animated stuff that's out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I almost feel like it's an American audience's introduction into what animation could do for adults from a storytelling perspective. So uh, th- what's interesting about this film is it's coming out in between season one and season two. So season one of the animated series was mm-hmm. um, pretty much a hit. And this film started out and we'll talk a bit about this more when we talk about production and development but it started out as a direct-to-video uh, project that eventually got elevated to the theatrical experience, and, and we'll talk about why. But the people responsible for it, and let's talk about um, you know some of the people behind the scenes, we've got two directors. So the first one is Eric Radomski. He's known for the Batman animated series, which ran from 92 to 95. Uh, he also worked, and, and Brad, I'm sure you know this, on the Spawn TV series that was on HBO, as well as the Spawn film. And yep. I think that ran from 97 to 99. He even did some Marvel stuff. There was that Marvel TV show, The Avengers Assemble, that I think ran from 2012 to 2019. He um, directed a couple episodes for that. The other big name on this as director is Bruce Timm. I think Bruce Timm is probably most associated with this particular version of Batman. So he directed a few episodes of the animated series, which again ran from 92 to 95. However, he is really known as the head producer of this series. The other showrunner, developer, producer. Yeah. Yeah. So if you watch any of the special features, Harley Quinn, Oh yeah, we'll we'll get to that here in a second. So, um, <laughs> if you watch any of the special features, you'll just see Bruce Tim all over this thing, right? He was uh, or still is the executive producer on a ton of the DC animated films, like the one we just talked about, Batman: Soul of the Dragon. Um, outside of animation, he's also drawn and written several comic books. So you were getting a little bit ahead of me here, Brad. But right. Tim and Paul Dini collaborated on the Batman Adventures: Mad Love. That was the book. Um, which won the Eisner Award for Best Single Story in 1994, which told the origin of one Harley Quinn. So in essence, him and Paul are the co-creators of the Harley Quinn character. So you can thank this TV series for creating that uh, pretty awesome. uh, I I, I mean, she's probably one of the most popular ones in the DC Universe now, right? She would have to be, yes. Okay. So there's a couple of other directors, though. So those are the two main directors, but you have some other names. So Kevin Altereri was a sequence director. Boyd Kirkland was a sequence director. Frank Parr was a sequence director. And Dan Reba was a sequence director, too. So you have two main directors. And then for these four other sequences, you have these other directors. In this- yeah, I mean, just think about it, because uh, I know that's a little weird to think about. But like with animation you can't waste a whole lot of time and stuff right. can't get cut. Mm-hmm. So you basically previous a lot, a lot of these sequences and you go off and work on this sequence, you go off and work on this sequence, but it's very tight. They already know exactly what's going to happen and how they're going to do it, but it just takes the man hours to do it. And someone has to supervise all that stuff. So that's what they're doing. Um, because animation still at this time, hand drawn animation is expensive. Yes, and and for this film, there is one CGI sequence that 
sort of occurred as a result of a bigger budget. Mm-hmm. But once they announced this was going to theater, they had to kind of put all hands on deck. Now, one one of the rules we have, and we don't know why, but a good indication that a movie's going to bomb is when you get four or more uh, people who are involved in the screenplay. And oh boy, here we go. So the <laughs> screenplay um, is done by a few people. We'll start with Alan Burnett. He also got a story by credit. So the plot was inspired by Mike W. Barr's Batman Year Two comic book story arc, but features an original antagonist, the Phantasm, in place of the Reaper, while also borrowing elements from Batman, Batman Year One, that graphic novel recounting Bruce Wayne becoming Batman and his first attempts to crime, uh, fight crime. So those are the those are the two source materials that Alan is primarily borrowing. But also you have Paul Dini, Martin Pasco, and Michael Reeves getting a screenplay credit on this as well. And of course, Batman based on Bob Kane and uh, Bill Finger. The other credit I kind of want to talk about behind the scenes is Shirley Walker. I think one of the things that the animated series and this movie is known for is its music. Shirley, um, her work has been on the show before. And so this is what she was working on in the 90s, okay? So in 1992, Memoirs of an Invisible Man. So we talked about that one, Brad. Yep. She did Batman, Mask of the Phantasm the year after that. Then the year after this film, she co-composes with Brad Fidel on True Lies from 1994. And then um, there was another film that she worked on for additional music only. It's another film we talked about, Mystery Men, 1999. So there you wow, go. another three timer. Yeah. <laughs> Got a recurring uh, character. I know. So let's talk about some of the voice cast. Um, if you bought or have seen the 4K release that just came out, I believe, last week, or is it this week? I, I'm getting my days. It was last week. It was last, last week. Last week, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's like a 20 minute um, video about our, our main person here, Kevin Conroy, who plays Batman and Bruce Wayne. So real quick, he's voiced Batman in 15 films, 15 animated series, and two dozen video games. So he's probably played Batman more than anybody. A little background on him. He moved to New York City in 1973 when he earned a full scholarship to attend the Juilliard School Drama Division, studying under actor-director John Houseman. While there, he roomed with Robin Williams, who was in the same group as both Conroy and Kelsey Grammer. After graduating from Juilliard in 78, he toured with Houseman's performing group, The Acting Company. And the following year, he went on the national tour of Ear Levin's Death Trap. So that's a start. Real quick, what are your thoughts on Kevin Conroy? Um, I'll start with you, Sophia. Outside of this animated series, is that just where you know him from? Yeah, I would say most of my exposure to him is from various Batman roles. Like if I think of Kevin Conroy, I'm probably thinking, oh, Batman, the animated series. He's doing the voice. Um, not too familiar with him outside of that. Okay. What about you, Brian? Uh, pretty much the same. I, I mean, I, he's the voice of Batman for me. Yeah. I If I read a Batman comic book, that's the voice that's in my head. Yeah. Was, yeah. 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 100%. <laughs> and unfortunately, we lost Kevin Conroy not too long ago. Yes. Mm-hmm. From everything I hear, Kevin Conroy might have been the nicest person to walk the face of the earth. I know after like 9-11 he went down and like cooked for people and did a bunch mm-hmm. of stuff. It's he really sounded like a great human being. Sometimes you wonder why the world has to be so cruel and we have to lose people like Kevin Conroy, why other people still get to walk, but you know, whatever. 
Yeah, if you watch the little um, mini doc, the 15, 20 minutes on him that's on the uh, 4K, your your eyeballs are going to sweat a little Dude, bit. Dude, I, I cried the entire time. We don't, don't cry, Brad. Our eyeballs no. sweat. I know. Tough guys uh, don't cry. My alpha, my alpha card has been rejected, but <laughs> I cried the entire time. Uh, real quick, a couple other names. Mark Hamill is the Joker. What? So, Never heard of him. Yeah. What happens when you play a character and then all of a sudden um, all you're associated with is that character? So in this case, Luke Skywalker. I'm like, if, mm-hmm. if you're going to get away from that, I feel like this is the way to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Provide an animated voice. And I got I got to tell you, the first time I heard it, it blew me away. I don't know about you guys, but I did not believe it was Mark Hamill. Yeah. In the same way that Kevin Conroy is the voice of Batman. If I read a comic or see anything where the Joker is saying a line of dialogue and you can't hear it, my brain is like, Oh, Mark Hamill, we're we're filling this in. It's so impressive that he went from such a iconic, distinct type of role to another iconic and distinct role. And I think that that really helped too, because he got to just fully throw himself into it and blow it out of the water. Yeah. I love it. hundred percent. I mean, the combination of Mark Hamill and and Kevin Conroy together was perfect. It was a match made in heaven. And those two, are perfect together when you hear their voices. It's it's why it's I don't want to say all the reason why that animated series works so much, but it it sure helps a lot. It brings the whole thing to life. I mean, they have such chemistry um, when they play off of each other. Uh, we'll yep. probably we'll probably talk about it when you talk about the film. We get uh, Dana Delaney as Andrea Beaumont. Um, I think like in my house, I know her from Tombstone, but my wife knows her from Desperate Housewives because she loved <laughs> yes. that show. Um, Hart Bachner. It's funny. She's the, the, the character is drawn pretty much just like her. Yeah. Have did, you seen pictures of her? She, the character in the, in the film is drawn just like her. So when they did the Superman animated series, didn't she do Lois Lane, um, for that as well? I can't remember. I feel uh, like I should have researched yes. that. She was Lois, Lois Lane in the Superman animated series. Okay. I think yeah. Also, she might've been in the justice league and justice league unlimited cartoons reprising the role afterwards. Probably so. Yeah. On that. Okay, cool. We get Hart Bachner as Arthur Reeves. Now, when you hear this voice and you're a kid of the eighties, you automatically go, that's Ellis from Die Hard. He has that distinct <laughs> voice. Um, it's, Oh, it's so swarmy. Um, yeah. Another voice. I don't know if you guys would recognize this. Um, Abe Vigoda as Salvatore uh, he was in the Godfather yeah. and, and most people would know him also from Barney Miller that ran from 74 to 81. Um, a couple other names I want to throw out there. Cause I, I think they're sort of, um, cult icons. Wasn't he the grandpa and look who's talking. Oh yeah. He was with the yeah. eyebrows. Yeah. And the right. eyebrows. Yeah. The baby pulls it. Yep. God, we're, we're, we're bringing up that movie again, huh? Yep. Cause when you bring yep. up that movie, it brings up uh, like bad memories of that other movie we had to talk about and watch. Yeah. Look who's talking now, which then ties into love on a leash, which we don't want to oh. yeah, never speak of again. Let's not go there, man. Okay. Two other names, <laughs> Dick Miller as uh, Chucky soul. Um, you'll know him from Roger Corman films and Joe Dante films. And, um, lastly, as the voice of the phantasm, which I always forget this. We get one Stacy Keach, which um, if you want to hear uh, about Stacy Keach, go over the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. They just talked about Up in Smoke from 1978, which was a great episode. Uh, okay, real quick. Production and development. So it was. we talked about this a little bit. It was originally planned for direct-to-video release. Warner Brothers gave Mask of the Phantasm a theatrical release, condensing its production to a strenuous eight-month schedule. That's all they had to get it wholly um, completed. 
The film was the first theatrical film produced by Warner Brothers Animation and was released through the studio's family entertainment division in December of 1993. Impressed by the success of the first season of Batman the Animated Series on Fox, Warner Brothers assigned Alan Burnett to write a story for the full-length animated film. The original idea for the film was to have Batman being captured by his enemies at Arkham Asylum and face a kangaroo court, in which the villains try him for making them what they are. The idea's concept, however, was considered, quote, too brainy as it required Batman to be immobile for a long time. So the idea was later used in the series episode trial, which was you aired. They to put that one back in the pouch, Troy. Yeah. They... <laughs> Can- kangaroo <court. laughs> well, well played, Brad, but uh, it shows up in, I think season two after the film's released aiding Burnett in writing the script were Martin Pascoe, who handled most of the flashback segments Reeves, who wrote the climax and Dini, who claims he filled in the holes here and there. Uh, alongside The Lion King and Nightmare Before Christmas, Mask of the Phantasm was nominated for an Annie Award in the category of Best Animated Feature, but lost to The Lion King. So here's here's something to consider. Um, those uh, So The Lion King's 1994. Batman comes out at the end of 93. So you're asking, well, wait a minute, don't they have this uh, thing annually? U.S. theatrical films in 1993, this, this is what they had to choose from. The Nightmare Before Christmas, which obviously comes out later in the year, like Batman, Once Upon a Forest, Happily Ever After, and We're Back, A Dinosaur Story. That's, that's the animated films being shown that year in 1993. And in terms of Batman films where Mask of the Phantasm fits, so keep in mind, this is heavily inspired by Tim Burton's 1989 mm-hmm. Batman Batman Returns comes out in 1992. Um, This animated series, Batman the Animated Series, also comes out that same year. Then in 93, we get Mask of the Phantasm. And the movie that follows this one is Batman Forever. Uh, So, and, and what's kind of funny is, if you go and look for Siskel and Ebert, go to YouTube and find Siskel and Ebert reviews Batman Mask of the Phantasm, they didn't review it on its initial theatrical release. They caught up with it when it was released on Laserdisc and VHS, and it was being released about the time that Batman Forever was coming out. So um, hearing their thoughts on this one in comparison to the one that's playing in the movie theater is kind of fun. <laughs> so real quick, we b- before we kind of share our thoughts on, on the film, um, we like to see if we can maybe put the pieces together uh, and, and maybe create a hypothesis on why this thing failed. So I'll start with you, Sophia, giving all the information we talked about its release schedule, where it fit in animated films and and sort of the Batman hierarchy of films. Why did this thing bomb? I mean, it's Batman. Batman shouldn't bomb. Yeah. I mean, uh, from the outset, it seems like it shouldn't. I would posit that it's a combination of theater going audiences, not expecting this kind of tone from an animated movie, not being sure who their target audience was for it. And the rushed production to get it into theaters, probably meaning it didn't have a ton of promotion to help clarify that for anyone. Because it seems that all the critical reception and it's become a beloved favorite afterwards as well on its DVD release and it managed to pick it back up. It really just feels like this was um, rushed production, limited promotion, left audiences confused as to whether or not they should bother to go see it. Okay. What do you think, Brad? Yeah, I think that's spot on. I think rushing it to the theater 
meaning there's no lead up for marketing. The animated series was a hit, but it's still probably gaining momentum at this time. Mm-hmm. And so people were like, well, what is this Mask of the Phantasm thing? It's a cartoon. I'm an adult. I'm not going to go see a cartoon. Um, probably releasing it like a year or two later after the animated series has, has run its course probably would have helped a little bit more. It's funny. We talk about this being like a cult film. I know up until 2000 and I guess whenever Batman Begins came out, people were like, Mask of the Phantasm, best Batman film that's ever been made. Like you would see it all the time. So it definitely garnered a lot of goodwill, especially with fans. Uh, But it just never seemed to catch on. And I think it was a was a cartoon and people weren't expecting a Batman film to be um a cartoon and it might have been a little bit of fatigue you, know, you have batman 89 then you have batman returns and then this comes out and then you have batman forever you get four films in what like five years that might be a little bit of batman fatigue as well yeah that, that makes sense i yeah. i i really there there really wasn't much marketing behind this thing so it gets rushed out we've talked about warner brothers and how they handle some of their uh animated films this feels very similar to the whole iron giant story in terms of um, them just getting it out there, not knowing what to do with it. I, I really feel like this is a movie that is way ahead of its time. Because if you think about the adult movie going audience, um, you know, if you go and just look at 1993 in, in, in a worldview and look at all of the animated theatrical films, it's all in Japan, right? And then the ones that we're getting in the US are so kid centric. When they put this out there, I'm sure the marketing department goes, this isn't for kids. It's way too hefty of a story. Um, it's it's not uh, – maybe, maybe they knew what to do with Batman on television in these little 30-minute episodes. But I'm not sure that they knew how to really market this to the movie-going audience in and of itself. Um, and, and, you know – I guess today's American audiences are a bit more mature in their movie going experience and maybe it would work better today. Mm -hmm. But I still think we're a little bit behind the times considering some of the animated stuff that you'd see in other countries, you know, specifically like Japanimation, et cetera. But um, I I think everything you guys said is, is correct. I do think this is, this is just a film that's way ahead of its time. It probably would have had a little bit more success if, if it got released today, um, heck I would, I would love to see this. Uh, I did you, you guys would not have seen this in the, in the theater, right? I did. Oh, you did I saw it on my birth for my birthday. Yeah. I remember, oh, okay. Um, seeing it like for, that's what I wanted to do for my birthday. My parents took me to yeah. see it, um, like two weeks after it came out. Yeah. I, I remember seeing it in the theater and I, I can't remember if I was the only one there. I know there weren't a lot of people there. And to me, it just felt like the animated series on the big screen and it was a lot of fun. Um, but you know, I don't know. I, I just am shocked that a Batman movie didn't at least make a little bit of coin outside of its, its production budget. But you know, we get to talk about it. I guess that's the good part about it. So how about we take a quick break and we come back, we share our thoughts on, uh, this time of revisiting Batman mask of the fat, uh, Fantas- I can't even talk my God. Ask of the phantasm. I'm just excited. I want to, I want to talk about the film. There we go. All right. So it's we're going to take a big break. If you did it in a Batman impression, <laughs> maybe let me see. Uh, uh, we're, 
we're going to take a quick break. No, see, I can't. It's I, I sound like Bat Dad. Where trying is she? To, where is she? We're going to take a break. Listen to this commercial. Then when we come we'll back, be right back, we'll be right back. The crowds are thinning out at the snack bar, folks, and there are still three minutes till showtime. You can easily make it for something that'll just hit the spot. How about it? Don't waste a second of refreshment time. You'll find such an appetizing assortment of refreshments at the snack bar, you won't be able to decide what to ask for first. All of your snack bar favorites are there, including fresh peanuts, hot popcorn, and candy of all kinds. And believe us, you've never eaten better hot dogs, crisper french fries, or more delicious buttered popcorn. Superman is a hit, say the super critics. Newsweek says Christopher Reeves' entire performance is a delight. Can I uh, take you to the airport? Not unless you can fly. Judith Crist says Margot Kidder is a delightful Lois Lane. The problem with Men of Steel, there's never one around when you want one. And Time Magazine calls it a film that's fun for everyone. Superman, the movie, rated PG, parental guidance suggested. Geez, once you do it, then you get a little tickle in your throat. Mm-hmm. Sophia, I, how many times you watched this film? Is this like number four, five, six, eighteen? Probably somewhere around six or seven. I've seen it a couple times. I feel like I tend to go back to the animated series more than any of the individual films, but this is pretty solid. I, it's still fun to go back to if you want something a little longer. So I've definitely seen it a couple times. Okay, well, kick it off, man. I, you, you sat down, you watched this, and now you get to sort of dissect it. What did you think about it? Yeah, I think that I was really interested going into this again because it's been a while since I had watched it uh, and I haven't really looked at it with any sort of critical eye up till now. Um, I think that this it's so interesting hearing that they didn't go with the kangaroo court kind of idea because it was too brainy because in my mind, this is a very brainy plot to give Batman for a movie. It's a lot of working through his past to examine why he is Batman, why he fights crime in the bat suit, and if he's going to continue in the same way that he has been. And that's a very like introspective angle to take for a character who is ostensibly gonna be punching some bad guys. Yeah. Um and I think it they pulled it off somehow. <laughs> so is it ever boring to you? I mean, typically with a Batman film, if if somebody's coming into it even from the Tim Burton days, Mm-hmm. You, you you feel like a movie like this has to just be wall to wall action. Um, and yeah, it's got to have a little bit of story. It's got to have a little, you know, character development, but it's really about the, the bat toys and, and punch people in the face and, and using your battering stuff like that. Um, 
this has that, but it also has a lot of segments that play out very similar to Citizen Kane. Uh, and, and that's intentional, to be quite honest. Citizen Kane was an inspiration for this film. Um, so does it bore you at any point or, or does it all work? Does it all gel? Ironically, I think some of the action segments are the points where maybe I lose interest the most. Not the There's two bigger set pieces, for lack of a better word, uh, where the opening sequence where they introduce some 3D animation, which Gotham loves its tall buildings. They love those <laughs> high angle shots of them. I can't take that away from them. Yeah. Uh, and one where, where Batman is chased by the police cornered in a building, nearly defeated. Um huge dramatic moment but outside of those two sequences a lot of times the action feels very superfluous to me sometimes i'm just like the real thrust of this movie is bruce wayne wrestling with batman with this uh arc driving us through with andrea his ex-fiance back on the scene and all of the actual superheroing stuff is very secondary uh, because that is so interesting and they do a really good job of balancing putting you in Bruce's mind with flashing back so that it's not just a lot of uh, drawn frowns staring you down. Um, so ironically, I would say maybe the action is where it loses me a little bit. But even then, the animation is gorgeous. So it's I wouldn't say it gets boring at any point. Okay. What do you think of, um, because most of this film, you're dealing with, I think, traditional gangster characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and for those who just, you know, lightly dip their toes into Batman mythology, you, you don't get your gal- gallery of rogue villains up until one that kind of pops up in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, does, does he stand out in this film in terms of he doesn't belong? Or is the introduction of the Joker, um, d- does it work for the purposes of the story? Because he, he kind of comes into the third act, more or less. Yeah, as much as I love Mark Hamill as the Joker, I do think that he is a little out of place in this movie. I think they did such a good job of setting the tone of the kind of cabal of gangsters that the Phantom is against, that throwing in such a recognizable villain in the third act to sort of bring in the familiar face. He doesn't really do much or add much to this by being the Joker, so much as he is just a bigger problem to deal with than your average gangster. I feel like there were ways to work around that. And I personally really like when Batman's kind of just got a bunch of gangsters to go up against. I think it's a side of the character that you don't you don't get that with Superman. You know, he doesn't need to fight a bunch of mobsters because that's kind of beneath his power level. Batman can absolutely go break up uh, these kinds of meetings, these kind of back alley deals. And it feels right for him. And it plays up a lot of the like noir kind of appearances and character themes that you get with him and with this movie in particular. So I think it worked. Um as much as I love Mark Hamill, yeah, I would maybe scratch the Joker from this, and I think it would still be a great movie. Okay. Well, Brad, on your 252nd viewing, because <laughs> yeah. I know your son uh, loves this, is, this film. <laughs> my, if my son was on the podcast with us, he would say this is his favorite movie of all time. Um, it's a good pick. Yeah, exactly. Because, um, like, from frame one of this film, when you're getting – a the amazing animation of Gotham City and then that music it mm. automatically tells you like this is this is something that is like higher tier um and of course I love the art deco style I love the hard shadows of the noir style as well the story is kind of complicated like I've had to explain <laughs> to my son numerous times like 
this happens in the past. This is in the past, and now we're back in like anytime those squiggly things happen on the screen, that means we're going back in the past. Um, I agree. This time, I was thinking about it, and I think it was such a choice, and I don't know if it's the right one because we've seen the Dark Knight. And that's how they introduced the Joker in the Dark Knight. Like, there's a problem in Gotham, so they hire the Joker to t- to fix that problem. And they kind of do that here. Um, and I don't know if I'm like, well, it worked in Dark Knight, and so it kind of works here as well. It's it's hard to say, but it is really damn nice to hear Mark Hamill do the Joker. So it's hard to argue that it's like, nah, let's not have it. It's like, well, Conroy and and, and Hamill together just are are perfect so if you're gonna do it just do it it is weird that it's like a third act reveal um it is also really refreshing to see an animated show that has some balls to it like at the beginning of this they're like shooting guns uh there's a dead guy like the old man dies with a big smile on his face like there is some some so there's a body count there's violence i mean nothing too crazy yeah but now that Um, now that you're listing all that and I again, I I swear, I just watched the animated series not too long ago. It feels like the violence in the film is amped up a little bit from the TV show. It, it is, it is, because I think you can get away with it a little bit more in a theater experience. But I don't know why. It's because maybe because I've had just kind of done a, a rewatch of some stuff. But that literally that first scene. I don't know if you remember, but in Ghost in the Shell, when Major goes in and shoots through the windows, yeah. Literally, they kind of lifted that part in like the opening of this a little bit, not like frame for frame, but I think they might have used that. And then the motorcycle thing where uh, Bruce Wayne kicks the guy on the motorcycle straight up from Akira. Like it just they do the exacting in Akira. So it's funny. Like, I don't know if those are exact influences, but I think they would be because those are so ingrained in people. Well, yeah, um, it, well if you're for, an animator. Yeah, yeah, oh, for yeah. sure, for sure. Um, yeah. yeah, and so it's it's just pulling everything in together, but it's it's like this is an animated show, but we're kind of making it for adults in a way. Like this is a very complicated Bruce Wayne is a very complicated character with complex emotions and wondering about uh, you know should he be Bruce Wayne? Should he be? Does he deserve to be happy? Um, and then there's like the mirror image of that with Andrea, who is kind of going through the same thing as well. And, um, you know, the tell of the reveal of who the phantasm is, once you see her and Bruce Wayne fight, you're like, oh yeah, I, we, we know exactly who the phantasm is. So it's not really a mystery once you, cause they do give it a little bit of a tell, but it is kind of nice that it's like, oh, it's just not some random person. Um, but no, man, I think uh, in the grand scheme of like American made animated films, this has to be in the top three to five. Like it just I think it's almost perfect. 80 minutes is like the perfect length as well. And I I don't know if it's it gets enough to but the music in this thing is unbelievable. Mm. That first score that they have that opened the film. Right then and there, you're hooked. Like you're like, oh, I'm going on this adventure with with Batman. I'm I'm gonna do it. Um, it feels operatic. They, like the, the opening sequence feels like then, you're watching an opera. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. you're seeing some of these explosions in the third act, and it's just like this is 
this is unbelievable. And the fact that they did it for $6 million is uh, kind of scary because, I mean, that's not that much money. And I think the conversion was like, at one point in time, it was like for every minute of animation, it was like half a million dollars or something like that. I forget. And so do the math and they're not even close to that. So. Yeah, so you, so you liked awesome. it. You liked it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Love it. Do do the flashback sequences work for you? I mean, that format in and of itself. Um, I wish. I don't know. It they do, but it is jarring at first. I because a lot of the gangsters feel to be the same, and the her father is introduced, and then they don't. I know, like he is killed, but they never really bring him back or like he's just gone all of a sudden and some of those other guys are gone and then they kill one of the mobsters in the graveyard and you barely know who he is. But again, we're working with 78 minutes, so we're not going to get all this stuff. And and the main character is Bruce Wayne and in like his uh, evolution of Bruce Wayne to Batman, maybe back to Bruce Wayne. And so we can't be wasting time on these baddies but it would be nice to spend a little bit of time it's hard to say so i would you say well i I don't know i don't think we've ever said this about some of the films but is it too short it might be too short i could go for another 20 minutes like if this was 100 minutes i think it'd still be fine and it might work better really okay well this question is for both of you how did the humor hit in this one there is some humor i think it mostly comes from alfred love alfred in this Every time he's talked, I'm like, this is great. Uh, the diaper joke. The diaper joke. Incredible. Uh, every time he enters with his little tray, sees Andrea and Bruce making out and then does a little jump and then exits, always hits. Um, I don't know if there was a ton of humor that really resonated outside of Alfred for me. <laughs> yeah, I guess he is sort of the, the I mean, it is pretty funny when the Joker is hitting her with a big thing of baloney. <laughs> I do like that. Um, I, I like the dark humor from the Joker, but it, I mean, is this the best Alfred that's ever been committed to screen or TV? Ooh. It's a podcast, guys. I mean, you it, can't pause that it's, long. It's up there. <laughs> it's up there. I mean, there's been some mm-hmm. good good Alfreds. There have been, but I mean... Yeah. I feel like a lot yeah. of animated Alfreds after this take a lot of inspiration from this iteration of him, almost more so than like any comic version of Alfred might to the point where I feel like it's hard to say if there's a better Alfred than this, just based on this Alfred possibly being the origin of a lot of the traits that have shown up that I've liked in other iterations. I really liked Alfred in the Batman uh, back in, I guess it was this year, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know if he beats this guy though. <laughs> yeah. I'm, this one's had a pretty long run too, right? Between the animated series and this film. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a tough one. I, I, I think Alfred for me in a, in a Batman story, it doesn't really work unless you have a very good Alfred. Like Mm -hmm. if, if you have an Alfred that just stinks, I actually think that's problematic because, you know, think about, um, the Vicki Vale characters and, and the Batman love interest that can kind of not work as long as you've got a good Batman and a good Alfred, as long as that relationship is really strong, everything else can kind of suffer to a little bit in a performance. But I think those two performances have to be like super strong in order for 
it to be a good Batman property. Yeah. In a lot of ways, Alfred is Bruce Wayne's longest relationship. And so if you don't have a good dynamic there, there's not a lot to anchor either character. And you do lose a lot in the way that the Andreas and the Vicky Vales, they can show up for an episode or a movie or whatever and be transient. And it doesn't affect too much of the core of the character um, of Batman or Bruce Wayne. Yeah. I mean, nothing against Michael Caine or Jeremy Irons or whoever's played the Alfred character. (laughs) I just, I don't know. There's something about this Alfred that, um, Again, if I'm reading the comic book, I, I sort of always envisioned this version of Alfred um, because he was well, it the guy who did it in in the Burton was Michael Gaw or whatever his name is. I feel like they stole his look mm-hmm. for this Alfred in the animated show, but he's definitely got his own personality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I never really thought about it, but Alfred is such an important character to Bruce Wayne. Because like you said, he's like, that's his most stable relationship. And they they have a, you know, they butt heads quite a bit too. But there's also that loving fatherly relationship as well. So it's a very, I mean, Alfred's has its complexities too. So yeah, God, now I'm going to be thinking about that for like a long time. I'm going to be thinking about that tomorrow at work. I'm be like, who's the best Alfred? Hey, I would love for anybody to write in and make a justification. It's not Andy Circus, yes. I can tell you that. It's not okay. <laughs> I would agree with that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I agree with you both. I I one hundred percent was not expecting this introspective, um, deep film, especially when you get into something called Batman: Mask of the Phantasm. Like that title is so misleading to what you get. Mm-hmm. I, I almost. Should, I almost think it should have been called like the citizen Kane of Batman or something of that nature. <laughs> um, there is a scene in this film that every time I watch it, it gets to me and it surprises me. And I don't, I, I'm sitting there and I'm watching this. I'm like, this doesn't belong in a Batman film, but to me, there hasn't been another Batman film that has gotten this emotional or deep and really affects me. And it's this scene where Bruce Wayne goes to his parents' graveyard and asks for permission to be happy. Hmm. That scene, I it stand. If you think about all of the Batman films out there, name another scene that resonates and captures that character and shows not just you know, hey, he's suffering from the loss of his parents but really displays the tragedy of this character. I don't, I don't think there's another scene that um, comes close to him begging just for the opportunity to walk away and um, be happy. And he's, he's looking for that permission from his dead parents. I mean, I challenge you, I challenge in any of the Batman films, like (laughs) I can't think of one because every time I watch it, I'm like, this, this doesn't belong in an animated film. However, Kevin, Conroy. I mean, if, if I'm not saying Kevin Conroy is the best Batman, I'm not even going to go down that debate on who is right. But if you were to make a case for who could be the best Batman ever, and if you said Kevin Conroy was your choice and you pointed to this scene, I would go, okay. Um, that, that is a well-placed, uh, logical, uh, assumption. And I would almost agree with you. Um, the film does, something very different with Bruce Wayne and Batman that I, that I don't think a lot of the other um, products have done. Um, you get to see Bruce Wayne in love and happy, which is very unusual. And it gives 
that whole thing gives the whole Batman um, character in mythology more weight. And you all of a sudden don't see him just as a vengeful orphan. Um, he's a, he's a man who had his parents taken away, falls in love, wants to get permission from his dead parents to be happy because he thinks he found happiness now and he can let go of all that hate and anger, but then has that taken away from him and it feels almost Shakespearean. And then the, the other scene that really gets to me is the first time that Alfred sees him just with the hood and everything else. And he has this reaction. I think he says like, Oh my God, or something of that nature. And again, um, it's this, um, it's this moment in time where again, you feel the tragedy, but you also feel Alfred's loss because I almost feel like that scene now is showing that, you know, Alfred was, was holding out hope that Bruce Wayne would sort of give up this whole um, vengeance and vigilante lifestyle. But as soon as he puts that cape on and he puts the mask on and he has that reaction to it, it almost feels like he's, he's basically saying, you know, Oh my God, I, we're going down this path. Like we, we can't turn back now. Um, and it's not so much shock over the fear and intimidation that the costume is supposed to like bring, but it, it almost feels like a defeatist, I, I thought I thought I was going to get this kid into a happy path and he was going to grow up to be, I don't know, a functioning adult, functioning <laughs> billionaire. Um, but no, he's he's gone down this path. And uh, it's it's those two scenes that stick out for me, um, which elevate this thing, I think, uh, to be like one of the top Batman movies or anything of that character. I can't think of anything that's even come close to it. Yeah, there's a real depth to the Batman and Bruce Wayne character in this movie. And those two scenes are perfect. It, probably the epitome of the examples of it uh, that you don't get in really any of the other films to my memory. It's almost a different take on the Batman origin story that centers Bruce Wayne instead of the bat flies through window. I will become the knight uh, usual go to that you get at the opening of whatever the first reboot of Batman is for that respective generation. And I that gives this movie so much more depth than you go into expecting from an animated superhero feature film. Uh, and I think that's part of why it has such great longevity and just genuine impact uh, on the viewer all these years later. Yeah. I mean, I think Nolan taps into some of this in his trilogy, but I can't think of a scene um, even in the dark night. When is it? When, when Rachel dies? Uh, I, I mean, yeah, that sucks, but for whatever reason, it doesn't have the weight that I think um, occurs within this film. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Like I said, I, I totally get that. You look at this, you look at Nolan, you look at the newer Batman, they, they do have the same tone, but I feel like in, in this may sound dumb, but it, it feels like in, in most of the Batman mythos, you have Bruce Wayne and he puts on the Batman mask this one feels like you're seeing the origin of Batman and everything from here on out, Bruce Wayne is a mask. And, and I know yeah, it's, it, it's the character yeah. turning into Batman and losing the, the part of Bruce Wayne. Yeah. And, and from there on out, and, and I know animators have talked about, it, and even Kevin Conroy, if you look at the interview, he says his motivation and everything was that, you know, Batman's the real character. Bruce Wayne is the mask and that's why he plays him off the playboy, et cetera. Um, and if you look at it from that perspective, I know other films and everything have tried to do that, 
But what I think is unusual about this one is you see the conflict within Batman. There's that scene also where he's watching, um, is it, uh, I call him Ellis, but whatever the character is, the slime ball, you know, character um, from Die Hard. And Andrea are sitting there having dinner and he's sitting in that building or he's on the ledge of the building just watching them in the rain. Arthur, Arthur, Arthur. Yeah. Uh, and again, it's, it's just this other, um, level of, okay, this isn't Bruce Wayne feeling conflicted. This is Batman feeling conflicted. So I feel like they do a really good job of fleshing out sort of the tragedy of Batman more so than the Bruce Wayne. And like I said, I I think it's there in the Nolan stuff, but I, I almost feel like everybody tries to have this balance between Bruce Wayne and Batman. Whereas this one commits to the Batman character and then shows you how you, how you get a Batman and then the Bruce Wayne that exists outside of that is, is really the mask. I know that's what Kevin Conroy was going for. Um, and I think that's an interesting take. I haven't, I haven't heard any other of the actors who portrayed that Bruce Wayne Batman even, even go that path. But I think, I think this film kind of delivers that. This is going to be a little off topic, but is Batman mask of the phantasm, one of the best movie posters of all time, that original one, the theatrical one. Um, I like it. I gotta, I gotta be honest with you. I like the 4k. Um, no, I hate it. You hate hate it. it. I I I love it. I think that original poster is perfect. It's cool. Because The way you look at it though, there's a Batman within the phantasm as well. Take a look at it. I I do. I'm, I do love it. Like I said, I, is it the best one? Sure. I, I like, there's been a couple of Mondo releases on the mask of the Phantasm. Just search out like Batman mask of the Phantasm posters. There's so many different variations that are really cool, especially the ones that really, um, I don't know, embrace the film noir aspect of it. Those are my favorite ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. The, Cause there's a black and white one circulating out there that if you go on eBay, I was, I was looking at, I was looking at movie posters cause I, I have a problem collecting things. That's why. Yep. Cause you're a nerd. Yeah. I am a nerd it. and I'm seeing all these Batman movie posters, uh, and they're not the original, but they're the Mondo prints and they go for a couple hundred dollars and they're gorgeous. Um, and they're not even a full size poster, but I also thought about that. Would, would this be an awesome black and white film as well? Oh, that's a good question. Ooh. Like it's lean so into the, the citizen Kane influence. Mm-hmm. I, think it, I, I mean, I think it could, I think it'd be kind of. That's an interesting experience. Yeah, now I kind of want to see that happen. Yeah, there was an edit of uh, the Tim Burton Batman going around the end scene when they're climbing the tower to rescue Vicky Vale. um, That had been recut as though it was a black and white movie made into a silent film, just like a fan edit that was going around, and that worked incredibly well. So if that's anything to base it off of, I think that there is some evidence that this could work. I'd be curious how the animation would translate to black and white because they do have a very restrained color palette already going across the whole thing. Um, I don't know if that take, I don't know if you're really losing any saturation necessarily, but losing the the color might um, blur things together or it might look fantastic. I do not know enough about animation color theory to. uh, Yeah, I I don't either. Unfortunately, all that stuff lost my fell out of my brain. Um, Yeah. What do you, what do you think of the Joker reveal in this? Cause you never really mentioned it. I'm curious on where you fall. I like it a lot. I um, just simply because of the Mark Hamill thing, or are you just like that the Joker rides a <laughs> rocket back in this film? <laughs> it's pretty hot. I, 
Yes. Well, I like the baloney scene when he smacks, yes. you know, so <laughs> I'm already a fan for that. He's got that weird robot doll. That's probably, mm. um, I probably I th- used for nefarious reasons. Well, I've been, the reason why I asked that question is because I've been struggling with it a little bit because I know I like it, but it's hard to articulate And the closest I can get to this. So that ending, and I'm, and I'm talking about, um, Alfred talking to Batman about, uh, I, I mean, if, if you look at, and I think you said this already, Sophia, that you've got two characters that are basically sharing the same background, but one goes very dark and decides to kill people. And the other one is almost there and they're almost there all the time. And when you think about the Batman lore, I mean, the Joker is the main protagonist and villain. And um, if Batman were ever going to commit murder, it would be to that character, right? And I, I doesn't it happen at some point in a couple of um, variations of the story? Of the story? Yeah. Okay. So when when you think about what Alfred is is talking about and just saying, I've I've always been worried that you would go down that path. Like you couldn't save her. She she had chosen that, gone that way. And thank God you never did, even though you're putting on this mask and, and doing things that at the end of the day, I was, I was hoping you'd be happier. Right. So I think in order for that speech to have the weight that it does, you need her to, in essence, kill the Joker, because I think that's what's implied at the end of the film. So it's his greatest nemesis and she's gone down this path into 100% show that she's never coming back from it she has to be the one to kill the Joker. That's the, yeah, but then they, re, then they reveal her at the end. I don't know if I feel like I like the boat reveal. That's that fair. She's still alive. Yeah. But I, I think that adds the tragedy to it because now she has to live with it. Well, no, that he has to live with the fact that she's committed that murder of his nemesis. Mm. He can't be with her, not just because, well, he can't, he truly can't be with her because of who she is now. Mm. I, I think that sells the tragedy. That's the only thing I can piece together. Like I said, I, I can totally get where somebody would look at that and go, the Joker feels out of place. It feels tacked on and it's an excuse to get Mark Hamill in there. But when I think about Alfred's speech at the end and him finding sort of the gold watch in the back cave, and then she's standing on the boat, I think there's this level of tragedy in that you got to bring the Joker in, which is, you know, his, his greatest villain. She has to dispose of him and truly commit to this, this very dark path. And he's just on the edge of it. And it almost feels like, well, you could be with her if you're, if you're cool with just going around and killing all the villains, but since you're not, you, you can't ever be with her because you know, that's going to be eating at you. Yeah. I get, yeah. I mean, it's this, it's fascinating how complicated this movie is and how you can watch it simply as, Hey, this is a Batman cartoon, or you can be like, so let's break down the complexities of Bruce Wayne and how this is actually a film kind of kicking off the death of Bruce Wayne in the birth of Batman. And it, it's just, it's just crazy that you can do this with this film. And I think that's just a merit on how great it is and how, I mean, I watched it today and it still holds up. And I mean, it was the 4K, so it looks absolutely amazing, but it still holds up and 
it's 30 years old. Yeah. I, it, yeah. it's, cra- I think what's crazy to me is when you, when you see all these interviews and stuff and you hear like Kevin Conroy, like, well, it's Batman is the real person and Bruce Wayne's the mask. And you're like, well, that's a nice little sound bit. But to actually see them pull that off within the performance, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I totally buy that, right? Um, to hear people talk about Bruce Tim and everybody else when they when they talk about the Alfred to Batman relationship, I'm not seeing anything new. Like all of my comments are probably just a hodgepodge of what I've read and heard about this film, but they all make sense to me because when they say, "Oh, we really got to have that Alfred Bruce Wayne um, relationship," that's got to be super strong. To me, it's like, yeah, they they committed to that and they really developed that within this film. And I'm not saying other Batman properties don't have that, but I feel like this is, um, I, I know you said you could add another 20 minutes into this. I, I don't think so. I, I think this is a perfect little movie in terms of its runtime, its efficiency in storytelling, the economy it has. It doesn't like, there's not one scene in here that you can take out. Like if you take something out of this film, all of a sudden I think it gets confusing and it breaks it down a little bit. And I don't think you need to add anything else because it's all there. The key sequences and the performances. Um, and there are some scenes that just, man, they, they get to you, you know? Um, so I, I don't know. I, I love the ending. I love everything about this film to be quite honest. I can't think of anything I would change. I think it's really impressive that I can't think of. I, I also can't think of anything that I would really change about it uh, or add in. And it's a Batman movie that does not include the murder of Bruce Wayne's parents. There's no scene where we see the traditional oh, Batman yeah. origin yeah. story. And to have still pulled off such like a impactful and complete character arc for the death of Bruce Wayne, the becoming of the Batman, uh, and to pull off that origin story in a way so craftily without that inclusion and to have people still be saying i don't want you to add that in don't add anything else in you you've covered all your bases is really really impressive yeah i don't think we have to see the death of uncle ben anymore and i don't think we have to see the death of uh the waynes anymore we yeah. we all get it at birth yeah. they're like this is what happens to these characters we no longer need to see it we can have the dramatically backlit wayne family tombstone pop yeah. up and that'll you have and, all I the mean, information you need. Troy mentioned it. I mean, like when he's speaking to that tombstone, I mean, that is more dramatic acting than anything that was in those Snyder mm-hmm. films or any of that stuff. So um, when I said that I like wanted 20 more minutes is because I just wanted to be with these characters for 20 more minutes. Like oh, I, sure. I think yeah. 80 minutes is fine, but if it was a hundred, I'd be like, I'm, I'm still good with this. I'll, I'll marinate in this for a little bit longer. If, yeah, but I mean, it, to me, that's a case of if it were if it an extra 20 minutes, I go, man, I really like this film. But the more times I visit this um, and when that Tia Carrera song kicks in at the end, I, I just feel like uh, like waking up all of a sudden and going, oh, my gosh, what, what did I just see? Like I was totally invested. It, it's one of those few films that you're taking in the art style, the performances, the story, and you you truly don't want to pick up your phone. You don't really want to talk to the person next to you. Like you just want to watch this whole thing unfold even as many times as you've seen it, um, which is rare. And what I, what I find really kind of funny is after it's over, I'm like, Oh my God, I, this movie takes place in between two seasons of a television show, but at no point in time 
did you have to watch one episode of that television show to understand what's going on here, understand the characters or even, mm-hmm. I miss that so much. I mean, yeah. fuck you, Disney. Yeah. I am so tired <laughs> of the amount of homework I have to do to enjoy something anymore. How refreshing was it to kind of go, look, I could jump into this at any point in time. I can jump into the big movie event that took place in between two very popular television seasons and not feel like I missed a beat. I mean, how awesome of a feeling is that? Well, it also shows you that you can tell a full story in 80 minutes. I mean, I love the bat. I know I love Matt Reeves as the Batman. I, I yeah. love it a lot. Mm-hmm. It's three hours long. You can wow. tell just as a much complex, nuanced story in 80 minutes as a, even with 180 minutes. Like it, it can happen. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's give it a try sometimes. <laughs> I, I guess the only other question I, I had written down for both of you, and I'll start with you, Sophia. I mean, the Phantasm is a new character, right? It was designed for this. What did you think of that design as a villain or, or that character as a villain, even knowing that, to Brad's point, you could probably figure out who it was at some point before the big reveal? But, I mean, what did you think about the, the overall um, bad guy aspect of the film? I liked how similar looking to Batman he it was in design for the few beginning shots. I think one of my least favorite kind of like trope plots that you get in superhero media is, well, the the news media is turning the public against this hero. We must slander the vigilante actions. And so I was a little... Uh, the J. Jonah Jameson? Uh, yeah, sort exactly. Of, yeah. <laughs> I think that's a little bit old hat at this point. Um but I, I like that this allowed them to kind of walk the line of drawing the immediate uh, parallel of it's not the mask of the phantasm. It's the mirror of the phantasm. Bruce, look, it's your narrative foil, like experience this. And I think the design being so similar really played into that. Um, you know, it's it's the kind of simple design sensibility that the animated series had clean lines, not too much detail on it. But I think it works here. Um, the little ghost of Christmas uh, future, which I think the Joker calls out in one line. Yeah. but. Even so, it, it works for someone. I can I can see Andrea sitting down and saying to herself, "I got to come up with a haunting Grim Reaper esque costume to go track down all these gangsters and then putting this together." And I think I think it works on that level. Um, so I, I think I, I like I like that about a lot. Um, it took me a little longer the first time I watched this to get that Andrea was going to be the twist villain. Uh, I fully bought in, you know, much, much younger Sophia fully bought into, oh, it's her father. It totally makes sense. We hey, I did. The first, first time I saw it in college, I'm like, oh, it's her dad. Just came yeah, back. Watching and, it today yeah. for this podcast, it was like, oh, I see how I was supposed to have gotten it. <laughs> it's a lot sooner, but I, I think she works for this movie. I think it's the perfect villain for this Batman story, and I like the design. Okay. What about you, Brad? Yeah, same. It's like you take inspiration from like the grim reaper and you take inspiration from batman you you mix them together and you get the phantasm i love the mask it's got a strong silhouette which is important for Mm -hmm. this universe and uh yeah i you know at one point in time she turns invisible in a like knife or something goes through them and you're like i don't know how that happens but hey it's cool (laughs) and like what's making all that smoke i i don't know i don't care it just looks cool so yeah, and I mean, if I you're going to... I do... We're going to have to drive the drive the truck through the plot hole here in a little bit, Chuck. So, <laughs> eh, eh, so get ready. Troy, okay. I have a question. All right. Yeah, I was what? just going to say, look, if if I'm going to be a supervillain, I'm definitely using Stacey Keach's voice because um, oh, yeah. that was intimidating. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So, honking the horn, drive right through <laughs> it. Go for it. 
Um, <laughs> we're driving the truck to these plot holes, though. Um, so Batman is almost murdered by, we are told, five precincts of, of Gotham City. Mm-hmm. And by the end of it, we see that they have lit the torch for Batman to help out. It's like they've forgotten all about the bad stuff that they think that Batman has done. Very, very, uh, very neat how it ties up, Troy. But I love the silhouette. I love the end of the sh- that that shot. But do they forget that they tried to murder him and he was? They were thinking he was doing I, all this. I other think stuff? it. I think it's one of those like when when everything is finished. I'm sure Batman goes back and goes, "Here's the file. It wasn't me. Here's all the evidence. He's a detective, uh, right? So yeah. this this is one of those things where again, ah, oh, the old Shaggy. It wasn't me. It was. The, <laughs> if it the weren't sh- for you, crazy kids. Yeah. Um, no, but. I, I, Hey, look, I, f- to to be kind of wrapped up in a story like this, I don't need to see those details at all. No, I know. I know. Yeah. Sure. I, and I, and I, you know, I totally get that. You got to drive the truck every once in a while through those bottles. Yeah, but you make a good point. I mean, of of the this is a, a bit of a complex plot, but I could follow it the first time. I follow it, you know, the 70th time. Mm-hmm. I, I think it all holds together pretty well. Um, yeah, the mystery may not be like, a, well, the first time I saw it, I'm like, oh, it, it is her. It's not her dad. Um, but I, I still think everything works from a story perspective. There's nothing here that even if there is a small inconsistency, it doesn't get in the way of me enjoying a the plot or b understanding where we're going in the narrative. Apparently, if you brought if you bought the toys that came out right when this when this uh, movie came out, uh, they spoiled that reveal. Oh yeah, because she's uh, oh, just like yeah. Mask. No, like they have the phantasm in her in the same packaging, and they're ah. kind of dressed the they're exact uh, the dressed the exact same way, but she's not wearing the mask. It's Classic. the uh, her at the like end of the film, yeah, minus mm-hmm. the the top of the costume. So yeah, well, you can you can get that toy for like ten bucks on eBay. So I thought about it. I did too. <laughs> you sent me that one thing because I guess uh, it's it's the thirtieth anniversary. So mm-hmm. Mondo is releasing like the whatever one sixteenth figure for two hundred dollars of the Phantasm, and um, we'll have to see how we I don't know accidentally buy it and it accidentally yeah. shows up. We'll, I'll accidentally get in trouble. Uh, um, ooh, Troy, yes. you could buy me one and I'll buy you one. But, oh, but Troy bought one. For, but Troy bought. Oh my God, that is br- perfect. Yeah, perfect. We should probably not. Okay, I may have to edit that part out edit, so we don't yeah. have it evidence. <laughs> and uh, Sophia, remember, snitches get stitches. So, <laughs> all right. I won't say a thing. Got it. I didn't see nothing. <laughs> Did, uh, okay, so I know Brad and I had already pre-ordered and and the 4K. Um, we we watched that. Did Did you happen mm-hmm. to watch it on 4K, Sophia? I did. I haven't had a chance to go through the special features, but I did watch it on the 4K and it was beautiful. Yes. So if anybody is interested in this, this is from the press release for Warner Brothers. So the 4K HDR remaster of Batman Mask of the Phantasm was sourced from the 1993 original cut camera negative and was scanned at 4K resolution. So digital restoration was applied to the 4K scans to remove dirt, scratches, and additional anomalies. But special care was given to not touch the film grain or the animation cell dirt that was part of the original artwork. This is the first time since its theatrical release that it is presented in its 185 aspect ratio. So if you want to see what this thing looked like in the theater, this is the best way to do it. Um, and I, I mean, as much as I love the 4k, I'm a, I'm just a nut over the sound on some of these releases. 
It doesn't have Dolby Atmos, but it does have the original 2.0 theatrical release soundtrack. Mm. But it does have a new, brand new 5.1 mix that sounds fantastic. It, it made the theater rumble. Um, this, this is almost one of those ones, uh, like the 4K discs, where you're like, you got to see this. Because it, it does make a difference. This is one of the arguments I make for for like upgrading some of this stuff is like, there is a big jump. It's a big jump. And the, from, and the previous Blu-ray they did looked great. It was nice, but yeah, this thing this looks unbelievable. Night and day. Um, and I thought that Blu-ray was the best that film was ever going to look. All right. Any other final thoughts on, on Batman mask of the phantasm? Uh, great film. I thought it was incredibly funny that he had a convenient red pen to draw on the Joker's face. Oh yes, that is. <laughs> yep. I, I did see, I can't remember if it was, if, if it was the animators or something, but there was a YouTube, um, clip, uh, of them making fun of that scene of just saying, well, what if Batman like took a Hershey's bar and, and rubbed it on one guy? He's like, oh, look, it's Clayface. Or, <laughs> and, yeah. Um, it was sort of the most detective work he did in the movie in some ways. The, the, the he does the glass analysis analysis and something. Alfred makes some sort of comment about, of course, it is Master mm-hmm. Wayne. Yeah, um, it, it, it is kind of funny. But, you know, it, it's interesting. The the original character before he becomes the Joker I love the sequence when he's walking out of the house after just murdering her father and picks up an apple and, and just like, oh, no big deal. So I I think it's a side of the Joker you have not seen before in that animated format. And it's pretty dark. Even though you don't see the murder, just him coming out, just all smiling, walks right past her, not a care in the world. She drops the groceries. He picks up an apple. I'm like, that should have been an orange, like an homage to Godfather. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been good. <laughs> Agreed. Okay, there is one thing I would change about this yeah, film. Eh, eh, plot hole. Plot hole should have been orange. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to start with you, Sophia. We always ask the question at the end of our discussion. Um, this one didn't do so well at the movie theater. Uh, if you go back and look at a bunch of lists of best of films, animated Batman films, this is usually at the top. Uh, but we're, we're going to ask you this. Is Batman Mask of the Phantasm, is it a bomb? Uh, I don't think it's a bomb. I think it suffered from extenuating circumstances, but is itself a fantastic little piece of cinema, beautifully animated, fantastic performances, really tight story. There's nothing here to dislike. Uh, I think it just got a it got a bad rap at the box office. All Undeserved. right. <laughs> okay. Brad, where, where do you land on this? Totally not a bomb for me. Perfect performances, perfect animation, perfect music, perfect movie poster. Yeah, it's pretty much almost damn near perfect for me, Troy. Okay, well, let's let's make it unanimous. It's not a bomb in what uh, Sophia and Brad said. There you go. Uh, Brad, we have a little bit of feedback. Can I can I read it? Go ahead, please. Okay, we're getting close to October. I have to I have to add another cell to our uh, Excel spreadsheet. Yes, this one, you so. do. Okay, here we go. So I think this might be the first time Tom has written into us. I I don't recognize the name before, so. Tom, thank you. Uh, welcome to the show. Yes, welcome to the show. Um, he wrote in and said, Hello, fellow film freaks. I have a suggestion for your October watch list draw. The Girl with All the Gifts 2016 is a post-apocalyptic sci-fi horror that didn't wash its face financially, making $4 million against its $4 million budget, which is a real shame, and I, for one, think it deserves more attention. Thanks for the show. There we go. Got another entry. Okay. I'll, I'll write it down. 
Um, I can't remember when we this might come out a day late, but I think we're we're officially going to draw the October films next week. We are. So Sophia, you even have time to put an entry in. Um, <laughs> Good to know. But uh, yeah, we'll we'll say I don't know a specific date, but we're going to do it sometime later next week. So you have a few days when you hear this episode if you want to put in a suggestion. Um, and like we said, we're, we're going to do a pick. And if we happen to pick your film, we're going to send you a treat uh, in honor of spooky season. So there we go. Sophia, can you tell us a little bit more of what's going on over at uh, your podcast? Um, Movie struck primarily because you've, you've had a couple of episodes release. And uh, I don't know if you want to share with everybody like what's coming up as well. Yeah, so I host the podcast Movie Struck. Uh, it's available on all fine audio platforms wherever you get wherever your podcasts are sold. Um, I've had the lovely guys from this show on in the past, and the conceit is that every episode I bring on a different guest, and they pick the movie. So if you're interested in direct submissions of movies, uh, find a guest you like and look at the episode title. We've covered some Batman flicks in the past. I think the Tim Burton Batman and the Batman. uh, Matt Reeves have both been on the show before and I'm sure we'll have more in the future but uh, this month I've been doing a lot of international film. Uh, I actually have an episode on uh, the 8 Diagram Pole Fighter out currently featuring your your favorites Troy and Brad so definitely check that one out Uh, and we're getting into some documentaries for the first time ever coming up soon. I don't want to spoil too much but there's a lot of cool things cooking over on Movie Struck so if you're interested in uh, hearing a diverse perspective of the movies that people want to inflict on others or love themselves. It's a great place to go for that. Uh, you got to have your dad on some more. I love those episodes. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I, every year I do a father's day special. Uh, I love having him on for it. I grew up loving movies because of my dad. Um, we did speed. We've done speed racer, Monty yes. Python and the Holy grail Casablanca. I, he loves kid with the golden arm. So it's, he's like my favorite. Human being, yeah. I'm, so, I'm, uh, I'm so we're going to have we'll to get him on the show. On your show. <laughs> yeah. He's awesome. I love those episodes. The Monty Python one. Um, I especially love, I love that film, but I, I love your guys's take on that. So that, that was a lot of fun. It's a, I always have a really fantastic time doing this episode. So I'm, it's it's nice to hear that you love it. And also he will be so excited to hear that people like those episodes as well. Yeah. There's some holiday. I mean, can't you do like a Thanksgiving episode with them or something like that? Probably. Okay. Yeah. I'll see. I'll see what I can do. All right. Cool. Cool. Uh, Brad, what's going on in our world? Yeah. So we, like we were talking about earlier, released uh, Love on a Leash for the latest episode of Breaking Brad. Do not watch that film, folks. You can listen we to the episode. Swear it. Please don't watch that broken movie. Broken and uh, hated life. Uh, we're also on the latest episode of Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. We did Fatal Termination, oh, which yeah. is an insane film. Sophia, you, have you seen this one? I have not. I feel like I've heard the name floated before, but you need to go to YouTube and write and type in a fatal termination and (laughs) sit there and watch the 90 minute film. Especially pay attention to the last like 35 minutes. It's hard not to pay attention during the last 35 minutes. As as a fellow Hong Kong action fan, if if you haven't seen this, I mean, it's Moon Lee, Simon Yam, Robin Shaw. It's great. It's fantastic. And then upcoming next week, we are doing, I never thought this director would be on our little podcast, but we are doing a film directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. We are doing 2021's Licorice Pizza. Yes, we're going to have a few guests on for that one. It it should be a lot of fun. 
Um, Brad, we like I said, we have a we have a couple of days left. You can put in your votes for October Spooktober season. How do they get a hold of us, or how do they leave feedback on I don't know topics like who is the best Alfred in any of the Batman? We would love to hear your opinion on that one because I think I think that'd be an interesting debate. But how do they get a hold yeah. of us? And if you're going to write Andy Circus, just hit the delete button a few times and then think about your answer and write something else. Think about uh, your yeah, life as well. I think you you made yeah. some bad choices. <laughs> yeah. That's not a bomb pot at gmail.com. You can go to Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or head over to our website, not and hit the contact us button and tell us your favorite Alfred. Or like Choice said, you've got, by the time you're hearing this, you've probably got five days to get in your last request for Spooktober. And then we will do the picking next week. Yeah. And um, we will release another Breaking Brad episode this month because we have a little catch up to do. If, yeah. if you want to play along with that, don't. We're going to be discussing Lindsay Lohan's labor pains. Um, my Blu-ray should be here tomorrow, Brad. Yeah. <laughs> Same here. Blue, Blu-ray. I, can't, I cannot believe I bought a Lindsay Lohan <laughs> I need to like $11 on a Blu-ray from Lizzie. Lane. It smells like cigarette smoke. Cause it probably <laughs> came from her own personal collection. I'm starting to question what I'm doing with my life right now. If I'm yep. doing that. Okay. Yep. Sophia, it is, man, we're going to have you on a ton more. Um, I know you picked out something for noir Vember, um, when we start doing film noirs, but, uh, we, we got to get you on again. This was just an absolute blast. Thank you for, for taking time out of your busy schedule. Cause I know you're super busy to just, you know, spend a few hours talking about Batman with us. It was awesome. This was an absolute delight. Thank you guys so much for having me. I will definitely be having you back on movie struck again. And uh, yeah, I, I love this quid, this uh, little quid pro quo movie podcast, which we've been doing. This has been fantastic. And I look forward to uh, some noir in November and many more movies after. Yeah. And vampire versus vampire. Like um, Ooh, yeah. Brad, do you own that one? Love it. Uh, I don't know if I do, but hey, I can I can get it. Okay, yeah. There's a Hong Kong nice Blu-ray disc on, or I think Eureka did a Mr. Vampire set, and it's in that one too. Yeah. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Then I have you it then, because I have that I have that Mr. Vampire set, so I must have yeah. it. Okay. Yeah, it's on there. I think I bought the individuals, but yeah, we need to talk about that one. That. that. Okay. Sorry, um, Brad. <laughs> I I think that's it. Right. We're good. That's it. Oh no no that's not it. We got it. Like hey, go listen to these other podcasts and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Uh, so we have The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, Watch Get Plus, The VHS Files, uh, Backlook Cinema Podcast, uh, Mix A Podcast, and Raiders of the Podcast, and Movie Struck. Go listen to that. And there's a YouTube show people should check out from a good friend, John, and now for something a little bit different. Oh, yes, that's correct. Yep. So good content. Go out there, support it, listen to it. Uh, folks, I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, or evening. Thanks for downloading the show, hearing our thoughts on Batman. Come back next week. We're going to talk about Licorice Pizza. It should be a really interesting show because we're going to have some fun guests on there. So we'll see you then. Don't lose your head. 